This is a classic because it is a sex-positive comedy that is still so funny today. This is a classic because it's a wonderful ensemble piece that's majority women. This is a history. This is a Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. We're your hosts, Shannon Corinthian, Director of Production for Hedgepig Ensemble, and me, Mary Candler, the founder and former artistic director of Hedgepig Ensemble and curator for Expand the Canon. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. Today, we are digging into Mary Pix's Bow Defeated from the Expand the Canon list, available at expandthecanon.com. Dot com. Yes. Yes! Someone <laughs> else doing it. What is our pitch for this play, Shannon? If you're looking for a fun rom-com where your wingman is a flock of wing women, <laughs> consider this witty restoration comedy, a rollicking, hilarious, and touching tale of Mrs. Rich, the wealthy widow of a banker who wants to marry a lord to improve her social status. She listens to all the wrong people for advice, eventually leading her straight into the arms of a notable rogue. Through sparkling discourse interwoven with a moving subplot, Mrs. Rich's friends and brother-in-law come to her rescue in the nick of time and prevent their friend and a few other women from throwing it all away for an undeserving man. In this play, Mary Pick celebrates female friendships and the power that comes from standing together. Yes. I will watch <laughs> any play where your wing man is a flock of wing women. Agreed. Yes, please. So why is this play a classic, Shannon? It's one of those plays that is just timelessly funny. You know, it's it's clever, it's witty, it's engaging, and there's wonderful physical humor, there's situational humor. In the conversations that we're having about classics, one thought that we come back to is just universally relatable and timeless. And I think this play is that. I agree. I think this play is totally a classic because it's still funny. And honestly, humor doesn't always age well. No. <laughs> I think comedies are really hard when we're reading plays from uh, this time period. And this one just still gives us a good chuckle. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so, it stood out to us so early on. It was just like, this is actually just genuinely good. Like, I want this play to be done and produced because I want to have a good time. Especially in, in the years we've been having, reading a play that's just so innocently funny in its way it was really refreshing i will say you know when we read comedies from this time period we read a lot of kind of upper class comedies right yeah um and it's always a question of is this deeply relatable or not but something i really love about this play and i'm not gonna say it's hammered home hard it's not but there's definitely a few moments where some of the smaller characters are like wait what um <laughs> like this drama is insane um and betty the servant to mrs rich is a great example of that you know mrs rich is just like doing anything she can to become a titled lady right um even though she's in a really pretty great social position she's really wealthy as her name suggests <laughs> and um uh, and betty is like so wait, you're working so hard to be friends with people who can't pay their bills and are basically destitute, but they just have a fancy name. And it's right. like, 
yes question mark that's still super relevant i think that's what's wonderful this play is so self-aware but it's also something that we can talk about today when we think about schools um that we want to go into like higher education or people that we want to be friends with just because they have a certain name or connections it's funny because you know america back in the day used to you know we were a break from aristocracy, but Mm -hmm. we've kind of built our own aristocracy around celebrity now. So there we have it. Anyways, um, the other thing is, like, Mary Pick seems really interested in the woe is me, pretty white rich boy story, which is interesting. But what I really appreciate about it is she kind of does it with, like, when I read it, I get the sense of like a wink nudge to it. Of it is like, very tongue in cheek. Of exactly, of, yeah. like this is absurd. And you also have, um, you know, a character in there being like, "Yeah, that's tough." Sure, you know, you've yep. got someone actually being that outside eye to kind of remind us that this is absurd. Right. And another reason why it feels relatable is like because society and all still love, you know, the pretty white boy that is stout on his luck. And that's why so many movies are made about that same thing. But maybe his story is not as unfortunate as some other things going on in the world. (laughs) Yeah. So the wink, wink, nudge, nudge self-awareness is really helpful in this play. It's also a really sex positive play. Yes. And it's really women leading the charge in that realm Mm -hmm. of knowing what they want and going after it. And it's also a really good ensemble play. It's a, you know, there's so many characters and they all feel somewhat well-rounded, especially when it's a comedy that's fast-paced. But you get the sense that these characters have a backstory, that they have a life, that they have needs and wants. The stakes are kind of high and being in an ensemble like that, I don't know, I think it's really wonderful. Yeah, to echo that, it's like an incredible ensemble cast and it is an ensemble cast with more women than men. Yes. There are, you know, you can certainly conflate some roles if you are really scared of the cast size, but you can do this with nine roles for women, of which I would say eight are really, really fun and meaty. Yes. And then you've got, you know, one that's just there to get the plot moving. <laughs> but it's nine roles for women. Come on, every, oh, can you just think about like I know. every classical program, especially in college that has like 85 women and like yeah. three men, men auditioning for their shows. It's like, here is your play. <laughs> I know. I can't think of a play that's been done with majority women that hasn't been like a gender bending production instead of like, it was written traditionally with this many women. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And also, there are great roles for older women mm-hmm. in this. Like, please, please, please cast Mrs. Rich as a woman actually over 50 years old. Thank you so much. Make her a bit of a cougar. Yeah. I love that. Well, in this play, you know, you've got two main plots, and we'll get into this in a second, but um, the kind of centerpiece of each plot is a widowed woman. So you mm-hmm. have a woman with some life experience on her taking charge, which is why I think this is such a dynamic play. Right. It's not like a bunch of wide-eyed ingenues, mm-hmm. right, being like, hmm, I want a man. That's like <laughs> women who have like been like, I've been around the block. Right. I know what I know, and I want that one. Yes, exactly. She definitely feels like a woman who has seen things, who has experienced things, and knows her mind, which can only come from someone who's had a substantial life experience. Another reason I really like this play is I think you can make the argument that Mary Picks is pointing out the problems of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. 
Because you've got, you know, it's not just that the women are trying to contort themselves into pretzels, trying to figure out how to make this world work for them. But even when we get into the young Claremont plot line, it's like, also, this was bad for men, too. Yes, yes. I know that's something that we don't talk about enough, how the patriarchy is harming men as well. And Mary Picks, like you said, does a really good job of pointing it out in this play. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm giving her a lot of credit because I'm not sure that she is the world's most progressive playwright, but yeah. it was a thought forming in her brain somewhere, and now we can run with it. Legacy. We've talked a lot about this play and why it's a classic, but what actually happens in this play? Okay, I'm going to try really hard to do this in a concise way, because <laughs> as we know of like restoration comedies of this time, it is woven and crazy and many things happen but you've basically got the main storyline and a secondary storyline and in the main storyline we have mrs rich she is a rich widow Uh without (laughs) without too much sense let's just say that she's rich but she ain't fancy Uh you might call her tacky everyone would call her conceited Lots of dollars, but no taste. And her greatest hope is to run among the people of quote-unquote quality, as she calls them, which means titled. You know, she wants to be a lady. She wants to hang out at court. But instead, she is just a rich, common person um, of the merchant class. Now, because she is very susceptible to wanting to be a person of quality, she is taken in by some swindlers, Lady Trickwell, who basically gets her to gamble all of her money away. Rude. Exactly. Rude. And Lady Bassett, who claims she is helping her act like a woman of quality in, of course, the most absurd ways. And, of course, she will certainly introduce her to the court. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Maybe not what happens. (laughs) And she is introduced by these... Fine, ladies, to Sir John Roverhead, who is a total bozo, who has no money, but he has got a title, and he's quite the beau around town, flitting around. He is, one might say, the beau in the title here. (laughs) He is wooing her, as well as, we find out, a number of women around town, and maybe has something going on with Lady Bassett as well. We're not sure. Unclear at this time. And, you know, Mrs. Rich has got some people on her team telling her that she has fallen in with the wrong crowd, and she is acting like a total ding-dong, most notably her brother-in-law, who keeps telling her to get out of this, you know, situation. And her, say it like it is, servant, Betty, who is an incredible character. But she's so puffed up on herself that she really cannot hear what they are saying. This is so interesting because it speaks to internalized classism. She's been taught that being titled is what is important, and you need the title to move up in society. But as we know, in history and in English history, further down the line, industrialization will make it that the merchant class will be the one that's rising above and your title means nothing because you have actual, you have no actual wealth. 
she's so wealthy but she doesn't see the worth that she has yeah it's really fascinating it's so this so reminds me of like seventh grade mm-hmm. you are in this clique but yes. you see that other clique and you really want to be a part of them and like then you go hang out with them and then you stop talking to all your old friends because you could never yes. be associated with such horrible people <laughs> and that's truly how mrs rich this older widow acts she is so mean yeah. to her dead husband's family because she doesn't want to be associated with them right. anymore it's very mean girls mrs rich is katie heron this is mean girls this is mean girls this is why it's a classic this is a classic because it's actually mean girls and it's actually written by tina fey i mean no just kidding but you know maybe tina fey was inspired by Defeated. who knows i want that to be true so hard yeah. Um, meanwhile, our secondary story, which is also the secondary title of this play, is The Bow Defeated or The Lucky Younger Brother. This is the Lucky Younger Brother plot. We're really centering on Lady Landsworth. She also is recently widowed, and as you may have guessed from her name, is a landowner. She is a <laughs> lady. She's got a lot going for her in the assets department. But most of her, oh boy, most of her younger life when she was married was spent nursing a much older man. And so she is ready to live her life. She has come to town. She is down to clown. And yes, and she even says, quote, So, to hear in this dear town I came, resolved to participate in all the innocent liberty, my youth, my wealth, and my sex desires. And, I mean, kind of, yeah, she's totally down, but she's also super respectable, so she only wants to clown with a fine, upstanding young man. Super fair. Yes. Super fair. Yeah, I mean, she's wise. She's been around the block. Yes. Um, And she has her eyes on one young Claremont. But, like I've said, she's seen enough of the world to know that most men are trash. So she plans to kind of test him out to see what his true metal is before she really gets involved. And that's another reason why this play is so relevant. Because I remember just reading this play and just the tests that she puts on him. And, and the, the things that she's saying about men. It's like, this is, <laughs> this is a conversation that we're all having. That like <laughs> patriarchal society that we're in does not work for us. And we need to change this. You got to find the diamond in the rough. And that's what she's doing. She's looking for that diamond. All right. Meanwhile, a nice chap, Belvoir is headed to see young Claremont, where we learn that young Claremont has just lost his fortune through no cause of his own. And Belvoir is like, yeah, but I'm pretty sure your dad was super enamored with you, and your older brother is a total doofus, so how in the world could this this have happened? And he learns that the doofus older brother was so extra doofusy that Claremont Sr. burned his will with the intention of entirely writing Elder Doofus out of it. But then he, like, immediately died. (laughs) So he did not have a chance to write a new will. So hypothetically, the old will said, like, ah, my second son gets most stuff, but my eldest son gets a little bit, which is not in the common law of England. Normally, it would go to the firstborn son. And so he's like, "Mm, I'm going to make things even crazier and give everything to my second son. But then he died. Why not write the second will before you burn the first will? So many questions. So, <laughs> um, so of course, by common law, the elder brother, eldest doofus as I'm now calling him, is going to get 
everything. So younger Claremont, who has been assuming he was getting most of the fortune his entire life, is totally screwed. And his kind of friend-slash-servant Jack is absolutely freaking out because he's like, oh man, the person that I work for is about to lose everything, so therefore I suppose I too am going to lose everything. Um, so then Belvoir is then like, okay, I gotta help fix this. My, my friend's in trouble. I'm gonna go fix it. Okay, now back to Lady Lansworth, because this is where this all comes together. She meets this young Claremont. You know, she's wanted to test him out, right? So she comes in disguise, like a pretty forward, loose lady, just drives up to his house and is like, here I am. And she's absolutely delighted when younger Claremont actually turns her away, because she's like, super, one point for young Claremont. He is not a floozy. And even though she's happy, she's pretending that she is not happy. And Jack, <laughs> the servant to young Claremont, is like, oh, no, I think that younger Claremont is really playing is wrong because now he really needs to marry her because she's got money. So he goes and he's like, by the way, he's just pretending to be really like a good guy. He's like a total rake. It seems like you're into total rakes and he is definitely what you are looking for. And so then Lady Lansworth is like, oh, man, I was so fooled. I'm so glad I know that now, but man, he's a that's, a, that's a huge bummer done with him and i love this bit of situational comedy of like everyone's trying to do the best that they can in bettering their situation but just making the absolute worst impact and not helping their situation at all oh yeah oh yeah it is like that scene where he's like really like he's a bad guy is <laughs> yeah, like yeah. oh you're trying bud but no thanks all right, so now back to our main storyline. We learn that Mrs. Rich's niece, Lucinda, she's our one little ingenue of the play, probably like high school age, she is being wooed by Sir John as well, but under a different name, although he's still like, yes, I am this fancy man and you should be in love with me. And Lucinda is so great because she is really not caught up in all of his bullcrap, I think I can say on the podcast. She is more like, oh, this person seems interested in me. He has money and this is my key to freedom. She says, but look you, my lord, I must tell you my mind in two or three words before we go what you must trust to. I am not furiously in love. I run away only for more pleasure, more liberty. I will go every day to the play, or else to the park, to the lodge, to Chelsea, in fine, where I please. Or, as I run away with you, I'll run away from you, sue you, sue for my own fortune again, and live as I please. Yes, she is yes. using Sir John. But regardless, she still wants to marry him because that's the key to her freedom. So, back to Mrs. Rich. Sir John is wooing Mrs. Rich. Sir John is wooing her niece. And he is about to be found out and all hell breaks loose. And in this kind of grand founding out scene, we also learn that Lady Bassett is totally in love with Sir John as well. And there is an actual duel scene between women because Lady Bassett is like, I know that I have been trying to help this relationship between you and Sir John, but really it was supposed to be me all along. And it starts off with swords, and it ends with a pistol. 
and no one gets hurt, but it's all really, really fun. So this is now where our two plots tie together. This is the first play I think I've read where women duel so blatantly that like women fighting for a man does not pass the Bechtel test, but women dueling is so interesting. I'd love to see that on stage and Lady Bassett coming out being like, I actually love John. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> there is something, the tone of the scene when I read it has that very like midsummer Helena Hermia yes, tone yes, where it's yes. like we've been chums you know at least recently and now it's like all bets are off here we go yeah <laughs> um okay so here's where our two plots tie together we have um Mrs. Claremont who we haven't really met the cousin to younger Claremont coming in to save the day Belvoir has sought mm -hmm. Mrs. Claremont to come in and help out um, uh, in this whole debacle of younger Claremont's fortune. So Mrs. Claremont decides the best thing to do is to trick Mrs. Rich into marrying Elder Claremont, a.k.a. Elder Doofus, instead of marrying Sir John, because that would then free up the wealth for the younger Claremont because Elder Doofus wouldn't need it anymore. And also get her away from sleazy Sir John. She also kind of comes in and fixes the problem between Lady Lansworth and younger Claremont by just being like, hey, he actually is a great guy. I don't know why his servant was saying that, but I've got all this evidence to support that he is a lovely and respectable human. And so all of her fears are allayed. And in all of this shenanigans, we learn that Sir John is no sir at all. <gasps> oh! Gasp. He is a fraud tricking women pretending to be Sir Roverhead because he knows Sir Roverhead is sick and never comes to town. He is pretending getting women to fall in love with him, giving him all their money, and then basically being done with them. Rude. And Lady Bassett has been his partner in crime the whole time. She is in love with him, but also the business par partner trying to set him up with other women so that they get all the money. Gasp. Gasp, exactly. And so, of course, they're all ridiculed mightily. Um, and basically, all is well. History. Well, this is such a wonderful, fun play. And we've talked a little bit about Mary Picks and her intentions for this play, but... Who is Mary Picks? Oh my gosh, I can't wait to talk about this. Mary Picks is so interesting to me. So Mary Picks, living in England, born in 1666 and dies in 1709. She is an English novelist and a playwright who wrote 13 plays in her life. Um, it's a little contested because some are under her name, some were written anonymously or under a pen name, and we are pretty sure it shakes out to 13 that she wrote, but, you know, maybe there's another one out there that we will learn is hers. Here's a fun fact. She was a colleague of our girl, Susanna Santlivre, from yes. the 2020 list. Um, so go check that out. Other great writer. And she's also a contemporary of Offer Ben. Wow. Yeah. So writing, you know, she's maybe 20 years later than Offer Ben, but basically writing at the same time. Um, she grew up in a schoolhouse in the country where she lived until it burned to the ground. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and here is a super fun, scandalous rumor. The rumor is that Mary had been energetically making love to a young man when they tipped over a candle, and poof, <gasps> there goes the schoolhouse. You know, I hope it is true. I do, too. I was reading some commentary that were like, oh, man, everyone likes to slut shame Mary Picks. And I'm like, I don't think that's slut shaming. I think that is like, yeah. Yeah, I, it's definitely not slut shaming. I'm like, yeah, you go, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Having so much fun that you literally 
burn the house down. Love it. Love it. So she does eventually get married at the ripe old age of 18 and settles in London. Um, And it's not until she is 30 years old that she becomes a professional writer. And she does that by publishing her first novel and her first two plays, Ibrahim, the 13th Emperor of the Turks, and The Spanish Wives. We have read both for Expand the Canon, and we like The Bow Defeated the best. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that she became a professional writer at 30, I think, speaks to the age of the women in her plays, speaks to the wisdom of the women in her plays. Yes. She's writing at the same time as these two other women, um, which is really exciting for the professional stage. Um, she is gal pals with, I'm going to murder this name, <sighs> Della Riviere Manley. Yeah, you're close. Yeah. De la Rivière Manly. Yes, De la Rivière Manly and Catherine Trotter. Now, I am calling them gal pals. That's probably not fair because truly they were um, colleagues all writing at the same time. I have no idea. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Maybe they were gal pals. Maybe they were like going out for a... Uh, tea. I like tea and crumpets. Tea and crumpets. I was going to go with like sack. Going out for <laughs> sack. What is sack? Oh, it's that beverage that they're always drinking in Shakespeare's time. Mm. Um, uh, once when I was a nerdy intern at the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, we tried to make a recipe online for sack, and it was potentially the most foul thing. Clumpy. <laughs> I hope it wasn't what that actually was, but it did not go uh, well. It probably was, to be fair. Yeah, do not recommend. Um, but there's some really incredible stories about Mary Pick's really duking it out in a man's world here. So these three women playwrights that were really kind of producing a bunch of plays at this time were so successful that they had the opportunity to be critiqued in the form of an anonymous satirical play called The Female Wits. This came out in 1696. And in this play, Mary Pick's appears as Mrs. Wellfed, one that represents a fat female author, a good, rather sociable, well-matured companion that would not suffer martyrdom rather than take off three bumpers in a hand. Wow. Hmm. So fat shaming is a tale as old as time, clearly. It is. She was also um, ridiculed for not spelling well. I mean, who spelled well at the time? I know. Spelling has changed. Exactly. <laughs> like spelling, have you looked at looked early? Looked at Shakespeare? I know. <laughs> spelling was not exactly codified. Okay, here's another fun fact. A name that we know more, perhaps, than Mary Picks, although we're now changing everything. Um, <laughs> William Congreve, his work, The Way of the World, which still gets produced all the freaking time, was performed at the same company as The Bode Defeated. And actually, The Way of the World was far less successful at the time. But now yes. it still is on stages. And uh. so I'm saying, why don't we bring back the play that was actually outperforming yeah, the way of the that world. play at the time? Um, all right, here's another way that Mary really kind of had to swim hard against the current here. So... She wrote a play called The Deceiver Deceived, and she sent a manuscript of it to a producer at Drury Lane who rejected the script, didn't want to do it. But then, magically, a couple months later, a new show popped up on their roster (gasps) called The Imposter Defeated with the same plot and the same main character. And she boldly accused him of plagiarism. I'm sure there was a flurry of pamphlets happening. Um, (laughs) Ye old pamphlet. Anyways, this became a huge scandal. Um, And after this, she actually doesn't put her name on plays anymore. 
Um, which kind of sounds sad, but I also want to mention that it actually wasn't really in fashion to put your names on playbills and on the plays. You know, authors were not necessarily the reason people went to plays. And Mm. because of that, it actually is the reason why more women got produced at this time. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Just because they didn't put their names on stuff. Exactly. unfortunate. Right. Here is another fun fact for this time period, though, where I'm like pro this time period, is that men and women playwrights were paid the same. Oh. Because you just got paid out of box office. It was just like, you got whatever percentage. Nice. Yeah, nice. The other thing I want to mention about Mary Picks here is that, you know, she writes plays with a lot of really strong leading female roles. And she was really specifically writing for two of the most influential actresses of the Restoration period, Elizabeth Barry and Anne Brace Girdle. So um, those are names that I have certainly heard in my history class. And it's kind of exciting to be like, oh, man, she yeah. was writing for them. Women supporting women. Yes. Love to see it. Love it. And um, what is another fun fact is that The Bow Defeated was, in fact, produced fairly recently under the title The Fantastic Follies of Mrs. Rich. And it was performed at the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2018. If you do a little Google, you can see some pretty cool costumes. Yeah. RSC. Um, so there is Mary Picks. I think she is a badass. 100% badass. 100%. And here is a hilarious scene between Mrs. Rich, played by Desiree Baxter, and Betty, her lady's maid, played by Rachel Schmeling, from The Bow Defeated. What's the matter, madam? What has happened to you? What has anybody done to you? An affront. Oh, I die. An affront. I faint. I cannot speak. An affront? To you, madam? An affront? Is it possible? But too true, my poor Betty. Oh, I shall die. To disrespect me in the open street, what insolence! How, madam? Not to show respect to such a person as you? Madam Rich, the widow of an honest banker who got two hundred thousand pounds in the king's service? Pray, madam, who has been thus insolent? A duchess who had the confidence to thrust my coach from the wall and make it run back above twenty yards. A very impertinent, Duchess. What, madam, your person shining all o'er with jewels, your new gilt coach, your dappled flanders with long tails, your coachman with cocking whiskers like a Swiss guard, your six footmen covered with lace— I say, could not all this imprint some respect in the Duchess? Not at all. And this beggarly Duchess, at the end of an old coach drawn by two miserable starved jades, made her tattered footman insult me. Slife, where was Betty? I'd have told her what she was. I spoke to her with a mean and tone proportionable to my equipage. But she, with a scornful smile, cried, Hold thy peace, citizen! Struck me quite dumb! Citizen? Citizen! To a lady in a gilt coach lined with crimson velvet and hung round with a gold fringe. I had not the force to answer to this deadly injury, but ordered my coachman to turn and drive me home at full gallop. I conceive... It was not against your person, but your name, that this affront was designed. Why do you not make haste to change it? That I have resolved. But I quarrel daily with my destiny, that I was not at first a woman of quality. 
Well, well, madam, you have no great reason to complain. You are at least very rich, and you know that with money you may buy quality. But birth very often brings no estate. That's nothing. There is something very charming in quality and a great name. Yet, sure, you'd think yourself in worse condition, madam, were you, as a great many ladies in the world are, known but by the great number of creditors that are bawling at their doors from morning till night. That's the modish air. Tis that distinguishes the people of quality. Methinks, madam, tis a great satisfaction to dare to go out at the great gate without being in danger of having your coach and horses seized by a troop of sergeants. What would you say if you were obliged to return home in a filthy hack, as several of quality have done? Ah, oh, would to heavens that had happened to me, and that I were a countess. Well, I am resolved. I will be a countess, cost what it will. Ah, madam, a great name will become you extremely. But a name is not sufficient. I believe you must have a husband, too. And you ought to take great care what choice you make. I have in my eye one of the most accomplished gentlemen in the town. How, madam, already made your choice and I know nothing? Sir John would not let me tell thee. What, Sir John? Sir John Roverhead of Roverhead Castle? He himself. Why, madam, speak seriously. Is it Sir John Roverhead you designed to marry? Prithee, where's the wonder? Why, pray consider, madam, Sir John is not worth a groat. I have sufficient for us both, and there is justice in what I design, raising up with what Mr. Rich has left me, one of the ancient families in the north. Oh, since tis a marriage of conscience, I have no more to say. Betty, prithee, what's thy surname? Cork, madam. Oh, filthy. From henceforth let me call thee de la bête. That has an air French and agreeable. What you please, madam. Thank you for joining us for Bo Defeated by Mary Pick's episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, colleague, or professor, family member, whoever. For info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedge Big Ensemble Theater. Facebook. Slash Hedge Big Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Again, I'm Mary Candler. And I'm Shannon Corinthian. Have a great one. Bye-bye.